welcome to another episode of Rahalastapa this week with the amazing Robin Ince. Hope you're enjoying this avalanche of podcasts that are coming your way. We only record one a week. I don't know how we're managing to put two out a week. That's just disobeys the laws of physics. Robin could tell us about that. Uh, if you enjoy these podcasts, why not become a monthly badger? Uh, GoFasterStripe.com. Lots of extras. You can pay £3 a month. You can get a different badge if you pay £5 a month. You can pay £10 a month if you want. And we are going to start introducing some bonuses for people who pay a little bit more. So watch out for those. Uh, thank you very much for your contributions. Um, go faster.com slash badges. Don't know if I mentioned that, but uh, lots of other extras, including behind the scenes interviews and uh, my stand-up shows and much, much more. We're also starting a run of new recordings at the Leicester Square Theatre on March the 9th, I believe it is. Yes, the day after International Women's Day, or when's International Men's Day Day, as it should be called, um, with Michael Palin. Sold out, obviously, straight away. Um, but uh, if you were a badger, you would have found out who was the guest was for everyone else. It sold out before I even announced it beyond the badges, so worth becoming a badger just for that. Um, I am aiming for some other big names this series. So it's worth booking ahead, richardherring.com slash gigs. Uh, on April the 6th, we have Lolly Adafopi. Uh, there should be many more confirmed uh, by the time you see this. Uh, also, Birmingham, March 28th, nearly sold out. And Norwich, completely sold out, April the 25th, two shows. So, yeah, look, go to gofaststripe.com for your usual nonsense, cards and books and whatnot. Uh, my wife just coming downstairs. Uh, she doesn't know I do this podcast, so I better leave now. Uh, enjoy Rahel Estapa with Robin Ince. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who is uh, always the first with on your vagina news. Is Richard Herring. <laughs> Always first, always first with the vagina news. Hello! Oh, it's good to be back, London. Oh my god, I've been all around the country. It's been hell. It's lovely to be back in proper London. I was in Newcastle the other day. Fucking hell. What, what have I done to deserve this? Those people? I'd said they were nice, they were awful people. Good to be back in London where it's normal. Welcome to Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. I don't need to do an acronym, fucking hell, they were so hard to come up with. I've been doing it for months, so it's good to be back. <laughs> I was hanging out with the kids from Stranger Things uh, the other day, uh, and they, uh, pretty cool, uh, they ate it. They call it Rahalastapas, and that's it. <laughs> Except for the one in the Upside Down, who calls it Duh, Upside Down T, Sir 7H. Kind of rabbit ears. Um, you know, he doesn't need to turn his calculator upside down for him. It always says boobless. It's good, it's good, he's lucky. He's lucky, that one, the one in the Upside Down. Pretty cool, aren't I, to know well, strange things? Cool. I've, got, I've got a Stranger Things notebook. Me, my, star, my Darth Vader notebook and my Wookiee notebook have been filled up on the tour. Uh, so I've got a brand new Stranger Things cool kid. We've been watching, <laughs> been watching that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I did say I'd be first with the vagina news. Uh, if you listened to the Edinburgh Fringe podcast uh, of this, and for those of you at home, that's a long time ago. This is going out, I believe, February 2020. <laughs> Fuck knows what's happened with Brexit at that point, but uh, there may very well be no computers or way of listening to podcasts anymore. And I'll just have to go and shout this through people's letterboxes. Uh, but uh, the, the New York Times has reported that women 
So in, in Edinburgh, there was a lot of people, put, women putting uh, ice lollies up their vaginas and uh, etc. It's always a bad idea was basically the gist of that seven-day run of news stories. There hasn't been one for a while. Uh, the New York Times reported that women are putting toothpaste in their vaginas in, a, <laughs> in an attempt to tighten uh, their vaginas. And again, it doesn't work. Don't do it. Like, don't put anything, including penises, in your vaginas. <laughs> Everything is disgusting. You've got your natural flora and fauna in there. I'm not sure there's fauna in there, but I mean, there's, um, don't put any fauna in there. The flora is all there, the flora is okay. Don't disturb, the toothpaste is bad, it can, and especially if it's got the little bits in it. Don't put that in, because that'll... Unbelievable that I have to be the one to tell people this is, this is Deborah Francis White's job. Uh, also, the New York Times <laughs> reports that men are rubbing toothpaste on their penises uh, in the hope that that will make their erections last longer and make them better. Love making it sort of as a, uh, a Viagra. I think, like, you know, is, is Colgate going down the pan or something? Is it just sort of trying to sell some extra toothpaste? <laughs> Don't put toothpaste on your penises either. It's the same basic deal. I mean, it does improve the fauna of, uh, of your penis. It's cleaning it a bit, at least, for, which most men need to do. But um, again, it's, it can cause abrasions. It doesn't make your penis uh, any better at having or worse at having sex. Uh, it might be a little bit like when you use that mint uh, shower gel. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about, anyway. <laughs> so if there's no one around, stick a bit of toothpaste on, see how that goes. But... Uh, the other news as we recorded was the uh, marathon. It's not the world record officially, but Elliot Kipchoge, I don't know how you say his name, uh, but he's good at running, um, <laughs> has done the first uh, under two hour marathon. Um, but I was all wondering, I, I like running and I wondered, he, he ran pretty quickly. Uh, and <laughs> I wondered how long if I started a marathon with him, I could keep up with him. And I'm not sure it's one pace. <laughs> He's very fast. I think because he'll probably be quite good at going off on the gun, I'd be, oh. oh. Uh, but I ran the marathon in four hours, 17 minutes and 50 seconds uh, when I did my marathon. Uh, but that's harder, isn't it? Less than two hours. He's got no stamina, this guy. I'd like to see him try, try running for four hours, 17, 50. Anyway, we're going to crack on. That's my topical, topical news since Friday night. My own fault. I don't know why I'm complaining. I put all the fucking gigs in. I said, oh, yeah, that's good. I'll do, I'll do loads of gigs. Idiot. Uh, so anyway, my guest this week is probably best known for his being a programme associator. A... <laughs> Just retake it. No one will know. Okay. My guest this week is probably best known for being a programme associate on What's the Problem with Anne Robinson? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're hearing it. It's, all right, it's Robin Inch, ladies and gentlemen. Robin Inch. Yeah, Hello, welcome. Sit down. There's a microphone somewhere. I was tucked into your side there. I haven't thought of that show for a very, very long time. I don't know if anyone remembers that there was a show called What's the Problem with Anne Robinson? Uh, the reviews wrote themselves. And, uh, but there was... It was, uh, Marcus Brigstock was on it, and it was meant to be a kind of chattish show. And one of my favourite things that ever happened, it was very, very hard to get guests. And one day, <laughs> in the office, the production office, the guest booker just shouted across the room, well, that's a no from Bruno Brooks. <laughs> so that gives, you, that gives you some idea. 
I, uh, I loved your, 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 your opening there, reminded me as you were talking about your toothpaste and the vagina yeah. things, because uh, I was in the, the Notting Hill Book Exchange this afternoon saying I was just going off to do this, and uh, my friend who works goes, it's funny about Richard Herring, because I always think, oh, he's quite highbrow, and then I listen to his show. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well done, Luke, you were correct again. The, uh... I, can, I can be very highbrow. I might talk to you about it, I think, like, it depends on the guest. So, lowbrow today, obviously. <laughs> But uh, I, I feel I'm uh, quite zelig on this. I, mean, I know in your book you talked about zelig, but, so let's talk about it now. But I feel I'm quite good at adapting to whoever my guest is. So I yeah. think, although that first bit, yeah, that's the real me. Just <laughs> obsessed with it. But I'm just wanting to help women with their vaginas. It's the, the only way I'm allowed to help out now. <laughs> my wife's made that quite clear. Um, so, uh, uh, so, you know, so I think I'm quite good at adapting. So we get different, different types of people in, and then I do a different kind of interview. I had... Uh, have I got uh, academics on this series? And, uh, you? Um, I know some. Yeah. I sit next to academics quite often you and do. interrupt them at the wrong times, yes. according <laughs> to some social media. Um, the, it was interesting, when you were talking before, in your, in your warm-up, you were talking a little bit about the, the, the idea that when you're 50 and you're no longer of any interest to women. Yeah. And, and of course, in, in some ways, I, I still am, because they always want to ask what Brian Cox is like. But um, also, the... Uh, because I've never been at any form of Lothario, and as you were talking about that, it reminded me, there used to be a lovely uh, comedy club, I don't think it exists anymore in London, called Comedy Camp. Did you ever do it? I think so. It was, kind of, uh, it was, it was like an LGBT-friendly kind okay. of club. And, I'm not uh, friendly to those people. So yeah. <laughs> I'm more than friendly. <laughs> but there was, Covered uh, it both ways there. Now, yeah. I've infuriated everyone. You, you have really captured the full zelig there. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, uh, there was a, I think this kind of sums me up in some ways, which was uh, the first night I ever played it, afterwards the compere Simon Happily came up to me and he went, oh, that went well, didn't it? And those lesbians, they liked you. All those lesbians from Essex, they liked you. And then the comedian Gina Ryan went, of course they liked him, he's so non-threatening. <laughs> and I thought that's probably what I've been aiming for my whole yeah. life and achieved. Yes, well, that's... Don't feel a level of threat. <laughs> If I look like I'm going to in any way be a threat, just suddenly point towards a bookshelf. And, oh, <laughs> some, some women are turned on by fusty academics. So, um, uh, I've just looked at Seymour Mace's notes. I was about to say your dad was a gold miner in South Africa. Yeah. Was he? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I never knew that about you. So I've been, um, I've been reading and listening, a, a combination, uh, a very 21st century to your book, uh, I'm a joke and so are you. And uh, I've um, actually mentioned it on so many of the recent podcasts, I thought, you know what, I should probably get uh, Robin on to talk about it because he'll be better at it than me. Uh, but it's a very... But let's you, find out. Let's find out. It's very... Uh, if you're into comedy, which the people who listen to this generally are, um, it's, uh, it's a very... I think it's a I must... I that laugh yeah, there. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, we're not, not really not here not for the really comedy. This is, there's something far more avant-garde <laughs> that's going on here. Um, I, I think it's a must-read. It's a must-read or must-listen for... Uh, for the comedy fan, it's, a, it's an interesting exploration because often these uh, books about the mind of the comedian are written from a non-comedian perspective. Well, it's quite a few. I mean, there's not that much, and the stuff that I have read in the past, like some of the kind of more academic books, will always give you this. It's, it's, I remember, uh, actually, William Cook wrote a book, Hard Bloody Hard, Comedians yeah. Talking, which I think you probably interviewed was, for, yeah, weren't yeah. you, but, but back, back in the early 90s. And I, which I don't mean as an insult, like things haven't really <laughs> turned out, but a lot of the other people on the cover are doing well in America. <laughs> and um, the... Uh, but, 
But in that book, he starts off by talking about this kind of the image of the comedian as a lone crusader <laughs> going from town to town. And it's a very romanticised image yeah. of the, this kind of, that, that we're, we're like, you know, somewhere like Bill Bixby in The Incredible Hulk, you know, that kind of thing. You know, the piano plays and we move to another town the where we cure the people of their, their small town problems with our punchlines yeah. and then move on to another place. Yeah. And, and I think there is a lot of romanticising about the kind of, and, and also about mental health in comedy and all, all manner of those. Yeah, so I mean, you do explore those things. I mean, I've, I've been talking to comedians mainly about the chapter about what made them become a comedian, which uh, you, you sort of you don't really come to a conclusion. I mean, I think you, well, you can't come, come to, to any conclusions no. on it. This whole thing about nature and nurture this is the, the, the great thing about science that science very often reaches a point where it goes, it's a lot more confusing than we thought. And that's what's happened with nature and nurture is it's such a mix of things. The reason that anyone in this room has become the human being that they currently are and the change that might happen, there's been lots of different things there. The childhood is very, very important, but the idea that there will have been one particular event involving a dachshund and a sparkler that led to them then, you know, becoming the, the, the person they are now is, is, uh, is unlikely. Yeah. Although, you know, you talk about... the. I mean, people do say that there's a lot of adopted comedians, there's a lot of comedians who've lost a parent... There's a lot of comedians. I think you have parents who are authority figures. You talk about stage about people who move a lot. If you have to, if you're moving to new schools, it does seem to make sense. There are certain. I mean, there, there are certain things which do tip over from the uh, the the average. So it does appear that it's a higher level than average of comedians who uh, were adopted. There is a higher level of average. But, of course, we also see this sometimes in certain other careers as well. So this is the, uh, the higher level and average of people who have uh, lost a parent uh, when they were quite young as well, in, in childhood. Yeah. And also, it, it generally, I think, in performance and the arts as a whole, in particular performing arts, there are the number of people who had a background which involved them travelling around a lot. So yeah. that idea, you know, someone like Michael Stipe from R.E.M., uh, or Robin Williams, actually, you know, they're, they're, both of them had, uh, their parents had jobs which meant they had to go to a new town, they had to go to a school, and they had to imprint their new personality very, very quickly on another classroom, on another group of people before they moved on again. Yeah. Well, you talk about your, your school, you came to your, one of your schools late and, and everyone yeah. sort of decided you were the late comrade. But I think I was already fucked by then. Right. So that was... Uh, I, 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 you know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, which is... Because uh, I know that there's always a danger of all of this being psychobabble. And I also think there's another issue, which is the issue which is we may well find things in our life which we can uh, blame for what we might see as our shortcomings or our faults, whatever it might be. But there's, there's nothing really to be gained in then spending a great deal of time remaining with that particular situation. I think what can be gained is that moment of just going, now I am able to understand myself slightly better. Yeah. And that's the, you know, so for me, I, can I do this? I don't really want to, but should I tell the story of, of, of why I think I became... A yeah, well, I mean, I think, but you were quite dismissive in the book, I think, of it, but I think this is quite a, a, a full-on story that, that, that would... It is an odd, it's an odd story because it's one of those things which is, uh, uh, when you get to, you know, 50 years old, and you are looking back at something, and it's so 47 years ago. And I think this is one of the most difficult things for people, especially when people go into therapy and things like that, or when people avoid therapy, all those things, which is there is something inside us that goes, oh, for heaven's sake! I was just a little child. It doesn't matter. Everything's changed and everything's moved on. But, of course, in those early years, in the, in the years where your brain is developing at such an incredible speed and all of those different neural connections being made, that those sometimes major events, those things that are called fl flashbulb memories, memories which are so strong 
that they really are almost, you know, almost as if they're burnt in, into that part of your memory. Though equally, of course, there is another problem with... There's this one of the problems. If you do a lot of programmes with scientists, you can't just say one thing. You have to then give the footnotes as well, explaining that there are other thoughts as well. And if you think of the paper that came out of the University of Illinois, for instance, that did throw some cold water on this idea, though equally, etc. But I'll just give you the basic fucking thing, right? Which was... That there are, for, 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 when I wrote this book, there was, so I was writing, the thing that's kind of started the book was I was doing uh, uh, an event for the charity Mind. I don't know if you were up, up in Edinburgh that year, I presume you probably were. Uh, there, there was a show called Cheaper Than Therapy, and I happened to be doing that, and it was with Eddie Peppertone. Have you had Eddie yeah. on this? No. Eddie's so great, great American comedian. And uh, he, um, halfway through the show, uh, we were doing the show for Mind, and we found out that uh, Robin Williams had taken his life, and... Uh, and then the next day I was kind of looking at all of the newspapers and the social media and I thought a lot of it was very mundane and it had gone down a very, very kind of cliched route of, oh, well, of course, he's a, he was a clown, so that's what happens. Clowns are born, something happens, then they make people happy for a while, then they realise how sad they are, then they die. And it was all turned into that. And, of course, yeah. you know, that whole story, there is far more in it than, than just that, that cheesy narrative that's like an old Athena postcard. And... Um, so anyway, the, the, I started to think, you know, the different situations that people get in, and there are quite a few. You know, Eddie Izzard would be, the, I suppose, the most well-known example of someone who, you know, lost a parent at a very early age and, and now talks about it a great deal. The older he becomes, I think it almost feels as if he's, you know, he, he often says all of those different events that it, when, he, when he runs 26 marathons in 26 days, yeah. whatever it is, all of that stuff comes from the fact that he, he almost believes if he does these incredible things, will his mother come back, right? And he's, he's, that's become a major part of his kind of story. So anyway, as I was writing all these different narratives of people, um, I also then started to think about, you know, there's there one part of my life, there's one thing that happened, and I think that might have, mm, and then, I, then when I write it, and then I get rid of it, and the editor went, you don't have to be embarrassed by this. And I went, okay. And I, I really hated putting it in the book, and then I've had a lot of reactions since. So basically what happened, when I was, just before I was three years old, I was uh, in a car with uh, my mum driving in the front, and myself, and uh, my slightly older sister in the back. And uh, Halfway through the journey, it was only a very, very short journey uh, home, uh, another car smashed into us. Uh, it was on the wrong side of the road. It was speeding, smashed into us. And uh, my sister was, was slightly badly but no, slightly hurt. She had her head was slightly cut open. And my mum was in the front seat, and she was absolutely... You couldn't see that any damage had happened. But I had this... This is the flashbulb memory bit, which is so weird, because um, it just always stays there, is I looked at my mum and just saw this still... Which, of course, I would never have seen anything, like, you know, even in sleep, the sun moving. And I turned to my sister and said, you know, why is mummy's eyes closed? And which really sticks with such a strange thing. And, um, and then my mum was in a coma for quite a while. And then when she came out of the coma, there were also um, various issues as well from, from the damage. And there's various things that I don't talk about in the book because there's also the kind of the collateral damage thing where you just think this is... Uh, sometimes other people are involved and other people are still alive. My mum's not still alive, other people. And the main part of it for me was I thought I'd caused the crash. So as, as two weeks off being three years old, I was down by the, uh, the passenger seat of the car and I was rummaging around for my toy machine gun because I had this brilliant toy, it's brilliant, it's a black plastic one with a little handle at the side, I don't know if you have one of it, and it did a proper rat-tat-tat and everything, it was so brilliant. And I was rummaging around as the other car hit, and of course, as a, when you're a small child, if you do something and something across the room suddenly falls over or catches fire or whatever, you go, oh my God, I did that. You know, there's a kind of belief that. So that, for me, was one of the, the main things that then stayed with me. So I was in the back of this car, 
my mum is being taken away in an ambulance. I then don't see her for a few months. When I do, she's kind of all wired up as well. And all the time I'm thinking, oh my God, I've done this, I've done this. This was all my fault. And of course, I didn't share that with anyone else because as a three-year-old, I would have been by then, there's, you don't know how to put that in words. In fact, one of the strangest things about writing about that story and putting it in the book and talking about some of the ramifications afterwards as well was my dad has read the book, which is awful. It's a terrible thing. When, when you do, I don't know if you've had it in your stand-up shows, but if your mum and dad win, you go, bloody hell, I'm not going to do that bit. <laughs> this strange thing that we can share ideas with hundreds of people, but if someone you're closely connected to, you go, oh, I, don't, I don't really want them to know that. But, so my dad read the book and he said to me, he said, I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known that you um, thought it was your fault because then I could have done something about it, mm. which I remember worrying about a great deal. And I told him the first thing, I said, you couldn't have done anything about it. There would be no way I've communicated it. I think nowadays probably there will be different things in that situation where a child's uh, parent is in a coma for a while. Yeah. Probably there's some kind of thing that kicks in. It's not just, just get on with it then. Yeah. So and then and then of course now I realise that kind of a level of hypervigilance that I have and all of that I, I, I think I think most of that comes from the fact the desperation to please as well which is you know e even this this moment that's why I can never be a very good comic is that I'm always worried about the audience the whole fucking time I'm worried now I'm worried about the fact there's been no punchline to this and it's just kind of a serious <laughs> story I'm worried that I haven't told a very good serious story and I could have done it in a way that was far more emotive you know I'm sure there's lots of different ways I could have manipulated them better. All of those different things are going on my head the whole time. And I feel that that is part... And, and then I realised, oh, man, I started therapy, right? And this, which was after the book, right? Which is, I thought the book would be my therapy. And then I interviewed all these therapists. And they said at the end of every interview, I presume you're in therapy, Robin. And I'd say no. And they'd go, oh. And then, so then I had to start going. And... Uh, and um, I had that, and I'm rubbish. The weird thing is, it's th I'm absolutely useless in therapy. I say nothing. I turn up. I'd, I've only done it a few times. Then I had to stop, so I went on tour, and that wasn't therapy in itself. And the um, and you lie on the couch, and I just think that's a rubbish story. She'll have heard something like that before. <laughs> this is tedious. Did I say that one last week? That's kind of repetitive. As if she's going <laughs> to review me on Chortle or something. You know? I mean, it was fine the first time. Brilliant stories, but it turns out he's only got three fucking stories, and he does them over and over again on my couch. And um, but the intro, then the, the one bit which I, I had that awful moment, you know, the cliched moment which fits in perfectly with the kind of cliches of those BBC Four documentaries about Kenneth Williams was a very sad man and all that stuff, um, was the, the fact that one of the things that happened when my mum came out of hospital, sometimes she would get very, very upset by things, obviously because her life had changed and things had changed. And when she would become very, very upset, it was me who would always go up to, when she was crying and stuff to try and put on a bit of a show and to try and mend the situation. Yeah. And that fits into such a kind of, you know, a cliche of performance, it does. doesn't it? So, you know, well, that's what, within the book it feels like, oh, this isn't a particularly good reason, you know, compared to these other people. You go, fucking hell, that's a pretty major... I think she couldn't remember, she didn't, she didn't know well, when you were when she first came, came out of hospital, she didn't know who me and my sisters were because she'd woken up in a much earlier time in yeah. her life. So there were lots of different things, and, I, and I don't really write about some of the other stuff that, 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 that happened after that. Uh, because it was it was a very difficult time, but of course, as a little child, you, you're generally shielded from yeah. it. You, you just get the little kind of you know the the, the background hum of, of the disorder that is suddenly there. Yeah, but that's a you know that's I mean I sort of think why did I become a comedian? You know, obviously, my dad was my, the headmaster of my school. I did that whole show about that. But I but I in the end, I think it's mainly because I just liked people who made me laugh, and I liked making people laugh because it predates all the school stuff. You know, my love of comedy goes right back to. 
the beginning, really. Yeah, you you have the the kind of innate show off gene. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I need. I don't think I had any trauma that made, you know. I don't. I don't think I'm trying to do it to to make up. Oh yeah, and out. I also think there's not. I mean, to be honest, it's not a sob story either, or any of that shit. I, no. it, it really is. I just think it's interesting when you go because Jenny Eclair's point I thought was great, which is Jenny Eclair said she had a brilliant childhood. She had such a brilliant childhood that the reason she does stand up is to try and create all the brilliant moments and all of the fun she had. Yeah. So for a lot, I mean, I mean Ross Noble, when I asked him about, uh, he, he, he won't have any of it. <laughs> but I think, you know, again, the main thing is, it, it, to me, it wasn't just about comedians. It was about everyone. Yeah. It's about why everyone, you know, the, 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 why we become the human beings we become is a really important thing, I think, to understand. If you're struggling with who you are, to be able to kind of just, and, and not to blame things. It's not like you then blame it. It's that you understand it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and people are looking at comedians going, oh, they want them to sort of be depressed. They want them to be tragic. You know, they, they, if a comedian's depressed, it's more in, in juxtaposition to what you're expecting them to be. So if you see someone looking grumpy on the tube and then tweet about it, looking fat and grumpy, I don't know who I'm thinking of, uh, then, uh, then, <laughs> then, you know, that's, you, you expect them to be jovial or funny, although not necessarily that one. But uh, the, you expect them to be funny all the time. So if you see them not smiling, then, oh, my God, I saw a comedian and he wasn't doing jokes all the time. Well, well that's what I love about Jason Manford's point, about he almost regrets the kind of comic that he is. He said, because if Jimmy Carr, if someone goes up to him and goes, hello, Jimmy, and Jimmy Carr just goes, hmm, that's enough. Yeah. Because that's his kind of personality on, on forever. Yeah. And whereas Jason Manford, because he's this avuncular figure, people go, I went up Jason Manford. I went, hey, Jason, great fan of you. And he went, oh, thanks, mate. Didn't invite me in for tea. <laughs> Wasn't in any way. You know, so that, that. But there is a, the, 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 I think in the book, I can't remember if it made it into the edit, but there's a sort of Kenneth Williams, a friend of mine, Peter, who, who knew Kenneth Williams. And Kenneth Williams to me is, is, is the archetypal documentary that people love making about the, the private pain of Kenneth Williams. Yeah. Um, and my friend Peter will quite often ring me up and give me different stories of when he, a, a documentary's gone out and say things that have been wrong. Like he says, people always go, of course, Kenneth Williams wouldn't allow anyone to use his toilet. He was a terribly fastidious man. He wouldn't allow anyone to use his toilet. And Peter went, I used his toilet on loads of occasions. <laughs> he said, you could use his toilet. He said, the only people he wouldn't allow to use his toilet were people who were beginning to bore him. So there would literally be <laughs> these moments you go, oh, Kenneth, of course, another thing. I think, oh, by the way, can I just go and use your toilet? Oh, no, you can't use my poo. You have to go outside, right? And then once they went outside, he'd lock the door, and when they came back, he pretend to be asleep. You know, so there's a different... So, and I think that's one of the, the problems, which is when the narratives are done on a lot of these kind of different groups of people, yeah. we stop that idea that we are a multitude. In fact, the most recent biography of Robin Williams, which is very well written, but the thing that annoyed me about it was every single page eventually goes, of course, things were going very well for Robin, but he was still sad. <laughs> and you go, well, I bet he wasn't... That, that idea of a kind of... For, for most people, that... There is not a perpetual... Max Wall talked about that. He said, who's happy all the time? It would be insane to be happy all the time. You can be happy as Larry for 10 minutes, and then the next moment, somebody can suddenly take you down, yeah. and then suddenly you can be tremendously morose as well. Those things, that's what part of being human is. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, we know comics who are miserable as sin. We know lots of avuncular comics on stage who are absolute fucking assholes off stage, <laughs> and they always have to lie when people ask you because you don't want to spoil it for them. <laughs> oh, have you worked with that man? <laughs> oh, yes, I have. What's he like? Super fun. <laughs> and, you know, not all of the most famous northern comics are. Um, the, so... And, 
That's actually one of my favourite things, not just in the book, but the whole thing that I love. It's like the thing that I love about when, because I, I think certainly I've known you for quite a long time, over twenty years, right? And yeah. I would, I would not say there is a huge disparity between what I see on stage or what I hear you perform or any of those things, and who I see generally. Yeah. Whereas then there's that other thing that you see. Social media does this all the time. I'm sure people here have had that thing where you have a friend and you thought you had lots in common, and then you look at their social media account, and you go, whoa, I really did not know they were that keen on the men's rights activist movement. You know, and you kind of have those moments where, where yeah. you go, some people are very, are doing that zealot thing. Yeah. They are being whatever you want them to be. And then every now and again, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it might be, suddenly reveals, go, oh, there's a totally different side which is hidden away. Yeah, well, it is interesting that because you can't, if you then put it out on social media, so that has changed the world a lot because you were talking about that idea of a laddish guy saying, you know, he's got his laddish friends on one side and you on the other side and he's having to sort of switch his personality between the two. But you can't really do that on social media. You sort of have to stick to one on social media, don't you? You have to, this is who I am on social media. So it's hard to hide that. So that, that must have changed people in a way, wasn't it? Those, those people who do flippity jippet around with their personalities. I've, I don't have the imagination to be anything other than I am. That's, <laughs> that's the problem with me. Um, there's loads of fascinating stuff, I, you know, as a comedian. But I think if you're interested in comedy, it is, you know, this, this book... I mean, it's basically a very long answer to where do you get your crazy ideas from, which yeah. is one of, it's one of my <laughs> most questions. I always questions. love that, that, that question because I remember reading in, um, the, uh, one, of, one of your... Um, oh, God, I've forgotten his bloody name now. Uh, Patrick Marber. Oh, yes, Patrick yeah. Marber. When, I remember him doing a, a, an interview in, a, in an Australian newspaper when he had one of his plays opening. He goes, I really have no idea where my ideas come from. Yeah. And I thought, but none of us do, do we? There's, no one has this idea that we should even start to get involved in that. It's, ideas just come. They don't know where yeah. your conversation comes from. No one scripts their conversation for fun. Ideas just come, and, and the more you kind of stimulate your mind, normally the more ideas you'll get, and that's it. Yeah. There's no special <laughs> fucking place. There's no, you know, if it's not actually being sold to you by Barry Cryer, <laughs> then it's coming from somewhere else. Yeah, although it could be being projected. Is it possible... It's being projected by aliens into our mind well, somehow. I, kn I know your hologram theory of the punchline, of course, <laughs> is uh, something that David Icke's been picking up on as well. God, I watched one of the things that he did the other day. I don't know why I did that. He's still doing stuff from the, the book Our Mysterious Spaceship Moon. Anyway, sorry. I don't know if you remember that book. It's very 1971. It's quite collectible, about 30 quid on eBay now. But it is about the fact that the moon may well be a spaceship. That, well, that's possible. I mean, everything's possible. That's the thing you've got to remember, Robin. Yeah, but some things are less possible. That's the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we have to always remember, which is about, well, even scientists haven't got exactly the right answer. No, but they, they, a lot of them have got better answers. That's, that's the thing, yeah. Is it possible we're characters in a video game being played by someone and that's where I, he's, or she is putting the, or it is putting the ideas, if it's an alien, is putting our ideas into our brains for us as part of the game? Yeah, I mean, yeah. sure. Yeah. That's... <laughs> You know, you that, that's the that thing, the isn't book. it? That, that's what that. I love. Simulation theory was in the, the Monkey Cage book. I think we did do a little <laughs> bit about that. I don't trust simulation theory because the main kind of proponent of it, I did a show with him, and he ate his sandwiches with a spoon. And that is how... I'm a very kind of shallow individual. And I immediately felt that his philosophy was flawed yeah. due to the fact he had a small spoon to take out the crescent tuna. <laughs> But that's what is the bloke playing him is making him do. That's yeah. it's not his fault. 
That's why he's... How can I make people stop being suspicious of my simulation? <laughs> That's the great thing. That actually comes up quite a lot when I've been touring with, with uh, Brian Cox. Uh, that, that question comes up almost every day about, is, are we living in a simulation? And of course, yeah. the thing is, we, it makes no fucking difference the way you're going to live your life. And that's what you, I, I think that's when you're sometimes looking. That's why I get, when I do see things on social media and I see people get tremendously angry about different things, and I think, how's this? It's not even affecting your life. It, it really just doesn't, you know, it's, it's like being furious about veganism. It's not in any way made it harder to find a whole roast chicken if that's what you're after. In fact, if anything, there may be more for you. So just calm down, you know? Though I do love Michael Legg, who I know has been on this, one of my favourite things. Michael's been a vegan for years, and uh, he did an all-vegan event, and he came out and he was furious. He went, oh, my God, I'm so angry. All the vegans were behaving exactly how I tell people vegans don't behave. <laughs> and, and then he looked at me and went, I've never had such a strong urge to immediately go out and kill an owl. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped him, thankfully. But, Good, um... you must stop him. Must stop. Uh, but I'm, I was interested in also, and again, I've talked about this a little bit in a recent podcast, about those, I mean, about going on stage to stop the voices in your head, but also I think, I, I often get it, if I've been doing stand-up for a, a, a show for a while, the voices start impinging on the show for me. So I, it doesn't, yeah. it's not, so I get like sort of malevolent hecklers in my head sort of saying, what if you forget how to speak or what if you forget how to breathe? <laughs> Well, I, have, routine, I, have about, you know? I think I, I reckon there's about five voices that I, I but that's why I love my favorite shows are the scariest ones where you haven't worked out what your show is. Yeah. And I know that's never happened to you on any of the <laughs> podcasts you've done, but it's like the but it's but those ones where you go out and you really do have to wing it because yeah. in fact the demands of creating a show is so great it shuts up all those yeah. little homunculi that are always getting in the way. Because I, I had that, I was doing it the other day and, and I actually looked at an audience and, and I said, I can now give you the five different voices that are going on now. And, and I had the voice that, I don't know how you feel, but in, in my stand-up there's a voice which is roughly what I'm saying that is also being kind of knitted together at the same time. And next, that is normally someone... My version is someone on a really ancient typewriter who's hammering away with possible permutations, right? And they're hammering away, and they pass you something. And then next to them is somebody who goes, don't fucking do that, that won't work in Peterborough on a Wednesday, you're dying your ass, right? And then next to that is a kind of an echo of, of a parent, maybe your mother, who's going, you didn't have to do this, you didn't have to seek the approbation of strangers. For 25 years of your life, it has hasn't made you better. And then next to that is, well, it's just basically screaming the fifth one. But it's like kind of all of those things that are going on. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm quite, once I started to work on that, to, to try and delineate between the voices, it's quite kind of disturbing about, because yeah. they don't shut the fuck up as well. That's what's infuriating. Well, it's interesting, you, you say in the book, it's different for everyone. I, I, and I don't like to think about it too much for fear, because I, you know, th those things, when it happens to you, when a, like, a malevolent voice comes into your head and starts dicking with you, I mean, you sort of, you know, when you're doing, sta doing stand-up show, you know, you know, your, your brain's sort of working out all the different things you can change, you know, and there's a, for me, there's a voice saying, well, what about trying this, what about trying this? And, you know, you're having an argument inside your head while you're actually talking, but then if a voice comes in and says, what if you just forget to breathe? Well, if you forget how to, to, to breathe, I mean, that's an awful thing to suddenly throw at, you, at yourself. I mean, it's, maybe it's just because, you know, you, once you really know a show, maybe you just think, well, this is, 
this is too easy now, and then no one in the audience is going to heckle me and tell me, what if you forget how to breathe? I, I'm worried that the fact that you're still having to mentally think about breathing on a day-to-day -day basis, because <laughs> well, for I'm most not... of us here, it's just a knack we've picked up. But that's we've, it, but... We're thoughtless breathers. I'm not thinking about it, but then if, if a voice tells me to start thinking about it... Or if you that's not what the voice is actually saying. What if you suddenly decide to hold your breath and hold your nose really tightly <laughs> in front of all those people, which is yeah. a separate issue? I suppose. But if you've got to speak, it's just like it's sort of trying to trip you up. It doesn't happen all that often to me, but I guess, I don't know, I think, I just think... God, I'm... those are really weird. Yeah. I wish I'd interviewed you now for the book. <laughs> the, um, but I've never had anything like that. My yeah. things are always things like... Uh, I mean, I've offered, before going on stage, I, I, think that the, I think one of the things about the, the kind of anxiety imagination is that if you, ha if you have a naturally kind of anxious bent about you, then sometimes you go, oh, I finally dealt with that anxiety. And then immediately the anxiety imagination goes, don't worry, I've come up with another one now. <laughs> so that will, it will always be filled. So, yeah. you know, when I started, I remember always that worry about what if I forget what to say? What if I haven't got anything to say? You know, when we first got yeah. our first 10, 20 minutes and I had the same old raggedy bit of paper in my back pocket for about two years, just in case, you know, even though I wasn't even doing any of that material anymore, but so just in case it all goes wrong. Yeah. And then you go, oh, of course, it's going to be fine. I've got like two hours of stuff now. It's not going to be a problem. And then it will change to, oh my God, what if for some reason, the moment you walk on stage, you really do need a wee and you know it's starting <laughs> to seep out. So, and then you go, oh my God, what if, you know, especially doing like science shows where you've got a wide variety of people in and you think oh my god what if suddenly halfway through a show I just got an erection for no apparent reason whatsoever <laughs> that would affect my BBC contract and uh, <laughs> but all of those things which you don't actually have I remember doing a gig for you at the Lyric Hammersmith yeah and for some reason I'd, I'd, I'd gone through this thing where I started to get worried more and more worried about the fact what if I suddenly needed we on stage yeah so I started to wear a duffel coat on stage because that would be absorbent enough Insane, isn't it? I mean, you'd have to piss upwards a bit, though. Yeah, you'd yeah, have yeah. to sort of. Yeah. Oh, well, I'd already used the selection of sellotape and gaffer tape to create the positioning, yeah. But that kind of thing, where once you get that in your mind, even though you go, well, when if, you know, we've all had periods of time where we've really busted for a wee and we've been able to wait an hour and a half. The idea yeah. that you've had a wee 10 minutes beforehand, but now there's some reserve wee that has saved itself for the lyric Hammersmith. <laughs> It's interesting. I do have lots of thoughts like that off stage, but I don't really. Then they mainly go when I'm on stage. But you you talk about that. That it's almost you're in a position where you're in control, and you you you. This is a place where you can leave all that behind, and you can you know Seymour Mace, who was my last guest. I think he feels very comfortable on stage, and, he, and it's the only place he feels that he can be happy in himself. And then every, all the time off stage is fairly unhappy. I think. Yeah, I think that's the day. That's also where the danger is because that bit where if you're going on stage and if you are being being funny or, or you know wry or whatever it is or yeah, and people are looking and going, wow, that person's really great, aren't they? And they don't realise about all of the. I think that's why sometimes the disparity between you know comedians and their partners. Sometimes their partners, I think, can be very annoyed at the fact that they'll see someone go, hey, you're really great, and I really loved your stuff that was so humane. <laughs> oh fucking hell, his humane stuff. <laughs> Have you seen the state he's left that? house in have you seen you know, all of those other sides so that yeah. bit that this noble version of you yeah. you know the edgy noble comedy version of you as opposed to the fuckwit that lives at home yeah. and fails well, on I'm, so many levels I'm as a human being but you have to remember that for an hour and a half a night i really am the most perfect human being apart from when i played obviously extra and the uh and so that's why i have to be an asshole for the rest of my time yeah. 
And I think there are people like that as well. There are people who definitely, uh, across the arts, there are people who go, well, of course I'm an arsehole because I create beautiful things. (laughs) There's no fucking room for that, you know. Which reminds me, I must get rid of more Morrissey records. Uh, what else? That's been so sad. That, that really has... Because I, I don't feel sad about it at all. Every time you get a certain person where you go, oh, it turns out they're an absolute fucking dick, I just go more shelf space. I really find... You know, the, 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 there are times where I just go, oh, imagine if you'd been a bigger fan of Bill Cosby. There'd be a room free now. You know, there's that kind of thing where... And I know there's a different battle, but people do sometimes go, oh, no, no, but there's the human being and there's the art. And I, I think very often the two are too close together for to me. I think for comedy especially, I think it... And, and music and comedy probably, you, you're buying into the person as much as the, what, what they're doing, aren't you? So yeah. If the person turns out to be just reprehensible or just far away from, you know, Morrissey's just so far away from what any of his fans, <laughs> certainly in the 80s, would have been. Maybe some of them have grown with him to be... Uh, uh, very proud of their country. Yeah. <laughs> Very proud of their country when it was 1961 and starred Rita Tushingham. That's the only time where... It is strange, but that, well, I find that strange. You know, I find, as we're getting older, I find that strange. You sort of start to see some of your friends start to go a bit crazy and, and change in those ways and, you know, and become more right-wing or just, or just more paranoid. That's, there's a lot of... You see a lot of... Certainly the comedians, I think, who... Maybe did, took quite a lot of drugs in the in their twenties. Have got like, become much more paranoid in, into conspiracy theories and that sort of thing in a way you wouldn't have ever expected them to. Also, is it because we've reached an age where we have to blame something else if we haven't got what we wanted? Yeah. So you know, you remember when when you were kind of those lovely times when you're 14, 15 years old and you're all having a sleepover and you kind of lie in beds and in sleeping bags. Where, oh, do you know something I really want to do? And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you know, I'm going to be a comedian, whatever it's going to be. And then once you're 50, the possibilities of of your dreams. are far less likely for a lot of people. And so you have to find someone to blame. And with Morrissey, it turns out it's everyone who's not him. Yeah. Which, you know... Well, I think that's true. And maybe, you know, it's the... Especially for men, white men, uh, they've never lived a life... They've never had a real point where they haven't had everything they wanted. And I think getting old, suddenly that power starts to ebb a little bit. And you aren't, you know... Women aren't interested in you anymore, and people aren't interested, as interested in you as they were. And so you do start to blame other people. I think a lot of comedians are very self-centered and very... And maybe you have to be to be a very successful comedian. You Maybe you have to just be so focused on yourself and your job. Well, I mean, my mediocrity has very much been down to my altruism. <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know one works harder than you. I mean, you're, you know, you, that's, I, as I get older, I think I want to spend more time with my family, you know. I think I that as well, but they disagree. <laughs> so uh, that's been the issue. I mean, I can see the beauty of not spending time with them as well. But it's but you're you know you're on tour all the time. You're on tour all the way around the world. You're always doing four or five shows at once. I mean, you gave up doing stand up, but that didn't hold. Did that it? didn't hold. But it's next year's again a year where I'm not doing much. And I do do things like you know I took the whole of the summer holidays off. I did yeah. two two music festivals, which I took my family to, and that and, and that was it. So yeah. I, I do I, and I do realize I don't want to be someone who's filled with kind of regrets about that. And I like, but I like, I like the process of working. But then there's a point where I start to go mad, and it's happened again. There's just that little bit where the unhappiness outweighs the kind of the joy, and and there is that point of going, oh fuck it, I really thought I'd sell more tickets there, and, and your <laughs> ego starts to get into yeah. it, and that's kind of quite an unpleasant thing, I think. It is, but again, I think you and I, as touring comedians, are more or less in the same place. 
Uh, you do big shows with Brian, obviously, but in, in the... Yeah, I don't think all of the 12,000 who came to the O2 <laughs> will be coming to my other London no. gigs. I mean, that's one of the weird things, which is... Because it's been a lot of fun doing stuff, playing to such... But also knowing that then I'm getting worried, uh, you know, a, 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 about the sales in Thirsk. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's... Uh, but I still quite, that bit I like, once I'm there, I don't care anymore. Once, you know, even, even if you haven't sold that many tickets, like in fact, was it Thirsk? I'm trying, no, no, North Allerton, when I played there. And, you know, next week, Roy Chubby Brown, he was sold out. Yeah. And, you know, that, that bit where they, they're not only doing cabaret seating, they're trying to find bigger tables to create the <laughs> illusion. You know, we haven't got big enough tables, because we only need two cabaret-style tables but to put the seven people around. And... Uh, but still, that connection, then I really enjoy that bit. Yeah. But the other bits of the, the, the that sense of fa and, and that bit you can't help the Gore Vidal thing of when you do see other people and you see their enormous success and you do just go, oh man, I just want a little bit more. And, and then yeah, but, they, but you always do. So even when you see that, and I, I've talked about this a lot, but when I went to see Seinfeld um, when he was at the O2 and I'd been invited to the after show pipe, which I never am. And I had really nice seats near the front, and it was, I was so pleased, and I really enjoyed the show. And then I was ex excited to be the after show party, and every comedian in the country, basically, all the big names were there. And not one of them looked happy, and they're all looking over their shoulder to see who else was there. And they're all saying who had the best seat, and all this sort of stuff. And they say, oh, I was in this box, and I was in this box. So they're all still, if you get into that mindset, you're never going to be happy because there's I don't always going to be in any of that. Yeah, yeah, I literally I always... do work and then I go home yeah, yeah. and I don't do anything in between. I don't do any socialising anymore. Still be... I don't go to that party where you go. I better go to that party though because <laughs> there might be Mike Big Time from Big Time TV and it might be my big break when they yeah. bring back Celebrity Squares. No, it won't. <laughs> you're no Willie Rushton. You know. It's... But I also feel with me with my live work, you know, I think having been at that point where and and still not always being able to escape that point where you're going to a little art centre and hardly anyone's coming, and then you've taken 20 years and it, you've built it up, and it's, you know, you might have doubled your audience yeah. in those 20 years, but you've done it through the, the work, you know, rather than being, like, being in a massive TV show or something like that, which still is, is an impressive thing to do, but that overnight success of, like, going from 50 to 10,000, you know, we, both you and I, have experienced the slow climb up the ladder to whatever we're getting now, you know, which is... And then the point where they go, you won't be needing the second ladder. Yeah. <laughs> You're only... Dead. But, that, but I, I think, yeah, that uh, overall, I, I think whenever you get comedians going, oh, God, it's, it's a nightmare, then they have to have a real job for four months. Yeah. You know, that, and I do know, actually, on the circuit, I think it is quite difficult now. There are a lot of people of our age and a bit older who had a nice kind of time in jonglers for a while, and now they're travelling around and smaller and smaller kind of fees and yeah. audiences and all I think there's quite a few who if you showed them what where they were going to be when they were 57 uh, they would have gone not going to take that route I'm going to you know go to college and <laughs> get a skill yes well it's you know it's, but that's that's sort of the, the beauty of the job and the tragedy of the job and I don't know it's you know it is you've got to keep working you can never really ever just you can never think oh I'm, I'll be fine Unless, you know, I, don't, I can't really even think of anyone who can really go, oh, I'm, no, I'm going to take a few years, I'll be fine, I'll come back. Because, you know, anyone can just sort of disappear as well quite easily. I remember Milton Jones saying about when he was backstage once at some, uh, I think, big telly gig, and he said there was a comic there who was saying, I reckon I only need to do one more big tour and then I can just retire and that's it. And Milton Jones was in shock because <laughs> he thought, but surely you don't do this to be able to retire. <laughs> the idea that you do it and then you've got enough money and then that's, that's it. Isn't that that's not the mindset? No. The mindset is if you can make more money and whatever, brilliant. 
But overall, can I go on again, please? Yeah. There's that, you know, some, some of the, that bit where I, I remember when I, when I stopped doing stand-up and very quickly I would suddenly find there'd be an event and I'd ring up like old rope or another new material and I'd go, can I just pop down? It's just got, got some thoughts in my head <laughs> and I need to let them out in some kind of punchline-y form. Pathetic. Yeah, it is pathetic. But, you know, it's very much what a comedian is. I've, I've, I've not done a proper stand-up for about 18 months. I've not, I've, since, since my last tour... But I'm doing this, so it's sort of that still scratches the performance itch. But I'm not. I'm I'm surprised at how little I'm missing. Actually, I'm not sure. You know, I think I will. Yeah, but you're still time. going out every night and getting the approbation of strangers. I am. And you've got a card machine now, which yeah. is helping your sales and everything. So it's all worked out okay. Yeah, it's going okay. Yeah. yeah. Going okay. <laughs> it's the but the the, the the relentless travel. You don't even drive, do you? Do you no. Just, you go by but train. But that's better. Right? That that Is that. Where I sit on a train and it does just become a library. That's what I see. Okay. I've got my seven books that I've chosen for the day, and uh, I sit there with a cup of tea and a bit of fruitcake, and I'm reading, 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 <laughs> reading. That, See, that's, that's why I'm more impressed. Why I'm more impressed with you is that you managed to read so much because I literally that now audiobooks have saved me because I can listen to a book for an hour when I'm walking the dog in the morning. But otherwise, I've got no time for reading. I don't know how. Well, it's trains. Is it? Is that? Is that how? Yeah, you do I think that's the the closest I get actually to switching off. Yeah. is the excitement of of every single new book. Like you know, when I went to Nottingham Book Exchange just before coming here, and of course I don't need any more fucking books. I have literally thousands of. I got rid of a thousand books last year, which I've I've sent to Leicester Prison. So if I get done for anything, can you send me to Leicester Prison? I've sent ahead, and the uh, but. It literally made no difference to my house whatsoever. And today I decided I did need the Hamlin Book of Ghosts. I did need another book by Foucault, which now makes the eighth book by Foucault that I won't read. Um, I, I needed another book of ghost stories by someone. Yeah, I just can't stop. I, I just, yeah. And every one I go, oh, lovely, lovely books. <laughs> yeah, Because each one has a potential adventure in it. And, yeah. each one, and, and that idea as well. Hamlin Book of Ghosts is excellent, by the way. Okay, Daniel Farson. Have you ever seen a ghost? Uh, um, I yes, uh, but then I've realised oh. that's that's what because I, I think that's the interesting thing, which is uh, that I, I think everyone will have seen a ghost at some point, but most people will then have gone, oh, hang on, what else could it have been? So I, every time that I used to take the shortcut across the graveyard that was between the pub and my house uh, when I lived in Peckham, I would see a, a, a ghost of a nun. Right. Uh, because there also it was one of those graveyards that had a lot of nun-shaped uh, gravestones. Yes. <laughs> so even however rational you are, when you're half pissed and it's midnight and you see something that looks like the shape of an angry nun ready to <laughs> suck out your soul by any means necessary, you do quicken the pace and fall haphazardly over the wall. And then once you are back home, you go, probably a nun-shaped grave. You know, that's... Uh... Good be. I've, I've always been... Oh, you're, you know, you're very obsessed with death as we've gone to that, and I've always been obsessed with uh, graveyards and stuff as well. I'm very, I went into the graveyard in Harpenden, um, which is near where I live. Harpenden's an awful place. The people there are the worst people in Hertfordshire. Uh, the, best, the best people in Harpenden are in the graveyard in Harpenden. Because <laughs> they're not walking around waitress going, Ugh, you when it be again. But the, the observation I made, we probably won't have gravestones, will we, our generation? But if you have a gravestone, make sure they really fucking chisel your name into it. Like, really deep. Because those are the ones you can still read in 150 years' time, and the rest are just, you know, if you, if you want to be immortal through your gravestone, they get weathered, those things, and if it's just, if you don't spend the extra money on getting a I think you don't want that, though. 
I do. I want... As someone who likes being looked at, yeah. what you want is an uncertain grave. <laughs> that means people are going, oh, who was that? And that will then, you know, no. replicate got... generally people's experience when they looked at us in life. All you've got who there. was that? All you've got is your name, your dates, and maybe like someone else in there is buried in there with you to give an idea of who you are. And then that's a little story if it goes, oh, which will be happened to me. Oh, his wife lived another 50 years after yeah. he was dead. Well, what will be even <laughs> better is if your wife has then made a decision not to be in the same totally block. So she seems to have lived for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe you, you sort of posit with maybe this early experience with, with this car crash may have led to you. I think you'd have been obsessed with death anyway. I mean, I was. I'm, oh no, I think the death think obsession was. It's one of those things that I've always. Yeah, I, I, I love. All, it's the, the whole horror movie thing and yeah. all of that. I mean, because I think that's for, for for our generation. Two of the the, the the core obsessions were the goodies and trying to be able to stay up late enough to watch horror double bill shows on the BBC because yeah. all of that. And I still love. I, I, I've always. I mean, I, I've got less worried about death since having a child because I think that for a period of time I got worried that if I died, the rep, you know how that might affect my child in they terms become, of become a comedian yeah exactly and then the vicious <laughs> cycle continues but I, I but I still I, I find all of those things like like I love old Peter Cushing films and Christopher Lee films and all of those different things that play around with different and all the Ed Grant and Poe adaptations and yeah. there's a lovely actually death story about Peter Cushing which is one of my favorite which is because uh, I, I, what I loved about the kind of I think that's why I became obsessed with horror I, when I eight years old, I bought Alan Frank's horror movies book, and then I, ever since I just kept buying more and more horror movie books, and I, and I never actually saw the films because I wasn't allowed to stay up. So you just have this one picture from some film like The Creeping Flesh, and you think, oh my god, it looks like the greatest film ever made. And then you would create a really brilliant film in your head, yeah. and then ten years later you'd see it and you'd go, my imagination has a much higher budget <laughs> than Tygon Films, you know, and that's. But what I loved about, and I still love about those, I'm, I'm doing, what's it, there's a lovely horror movie festival I'm doing quite soon called Abertoir in Aberystwyth. <laughs> and, uh, and they've got Gary Sherman there who directed a brilliant film called Deathline, which remains one of my favourite films, which is the one where basically there's a cannibal who lives in Russell Square Station whose only language is, mind the doors, mind the doors, mind the doors! It's great, there's a lot of range. And... Uh, Gary Sherman's there, Norman Warren, who made the excellent uh, Inseminoid that you'd like because Judy Geeson was in it. Um, but uh, Peter Cushing, there's a fantastic uh, story where when he was a little boy, he, his mother, if he was naughty, um, would pretend to be dead to punish him, right? So she would... Uh, so he said, it, 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 it's in his, I think, the first volume of his autobiography, uh, Past Forgetting, he said, if I was naughty, and I often was, then uh, my mother would start to sing a song and the song would go, I'm going to go away, away, I'm going across the sea, I'm going to go away, away, and I'd go, please don't, mummy, please don't die, please don't die, I promise to be good, but of course then I'd be naughty again. And then she'd just sit in a chair being dead. And then he said, he said my brother would come in and go, don't be so silly, Peter, you know she's not dead. Go on, kick her, shove her. But I couldn't because it was mummy. And then one day when she was being particularly dead, I was so upset and I had a piece of bread and jam and I shoved it in her face and she never did it again. And I loved, you know, those... Uh, and I just, I love the, the otherworldliness of, of those. I think that's part of it. Not really the otherworldliness of Edgar Allan Poe and, and, you know, and Bram Stoker and Mary Shelley and all those people, the otherworldliness of those actors. Like Ernest Thesiger, Ernest Thesiger is one that I absolutely love. 
who, who here's seen Bride of Frankenstein? Has anyone seen Bride of Frankenstein? It's an absolute fucking classic by James Well. And Ernest Tester was, uh, like a lot of the actors who worked with James Well, they, they were not really very camp as well, they, they, they were gay. And, and so when you watch these films, you would see this kind of eccentricity. And Ernest Thestia plays Dr. Pretorius, who's the one who says, have a gin, it's my only weakness. Have a cigar, they're my only weakness. Wonderful kind of chiselled face, very, very thin face, rather very bony face. And he was at the Somme as well. He fought in the, in the Somme. And uh, someone once said, they said, Ernest Thestia, you, you were at the Somme. So, you know, what was the experience like? And he went, oh, the noise. <laughs> And the people. <laughs> those are the things. I think those, those really did form the, the person that I am. Yeah. Came out of that bit of going. And I think that's the struggle we have, isn't it? Which is when you're young in particular, you're so desperate to try and fit in and find your place. Not everyone, but most of us are. And then there is a certain point where all of those niche weirdo influences, you go, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to be this thing. And that's what I find quite sometimes sad and worrying. But when I've, when I've done events about the book and other stuff, and, and quite often I've, there are kids in there who would have been roughly the kind of kid that I was. And that bit of when you summed, I got a mother coming up to me at a lovely festival called Also Fest, and she went, thank you very much for that and what you said. He's realised by seeing a, a man of your age doing it on stage that maybe things will be all right. <laughs> and I think, you know, they go, oh, I just saw someone who's, I think, weirder than me, Mum. <laughs> apparently, he's made a living from it. You know, that's... Yes. Yes. Well, you, do, you know, you do show... You, well, you do show your weirdness, and, and certainly in this book, there's some interesting weird stuff. Uh, about anxieties, and the, I, I used to have a routine about when once I had the kids about uh, that sort of impulse to kill your own children, which you, which you talk about, um, which is there to stop you killing your own children, yeah. supposedly. But well, it's not really an impulse. If no. you have had an impulse, well, just this the is idea. Worrying. Yeah, the, no, the, the um, <laughs> well, once lie I back did, a little once, further, Richard. Let's begin once this. Once I did have, once I did have, like I would, I would say, an impulse to throw myself, my wife and my child in front of the traffic, but I didn't do it. So, but it so wasn't, but well, I think impulse is the... Uh, I was annoyed. What if you did do it, it turns out you are the first ghost I've ever seen. Uh, oh, M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> what have you done now? Um, but it was... Uh, I... Uh, that, that's the important thing. I, 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 I apologise for... I always get worried about this. It's like, oh, I wrote about this. It feels, feels cheap. It feels like being a Des O'Connor thing. But I wrote... The, one of the reasons that I wrote the book also was that I did... Uh, actually, one of the... There was a lovely thing where someone came up to me. You know those bits after shows where it just make you feel happy that you did the show? A man came up to me in Nottingham and went, I'm very annoyed with you. And I said, oh, sorry, what have I done? He went, well, I spent my whole life believing that I'm quite weird but I've just sat and watched your show with your audience and I've realised we're all bloody weird, <laughs> which means I'm quite normal, which is disappointing. <laughs> so, um, but that was, that came, that was on the night that I talked about these impulsive thoughts, the, 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 these thoughts that, that, that we have where, and, and, and the classic example is where you, you're holding a baby and you suddenly imagine throwing the baby down the stairs or out the window. And then... You know, and I remember the first time talking about that on stage, thinking there is still a possibility that the whole audience go, no, none of us, none <laughs> of us of this really yeah. is, you know, this is... Um, and then when you find out that those... Some of the, and sometimes other dark thoughts as well, you know, they're very strange thoughts, and sometimes they may well be sexual thoughts, very taboo thoughts. All of them are, are they're the equivalent of a public service information film. That, that for, so for everyone here who's imagined throwing, you know, a baby down the stairs, well, when I say everyone here who's imagined it, and the moment they imagined it, gone, oh my God, not everyone here who's imagined it and gone, mm -hmm. you know, that's a different <laughs> thing, right? But 
what that is, is, is actually meaning you're far less likely to commit those things, you know, steering yeah. the car directly in traffic, because your brain makes up a film where it goes, you know, you, you are holding a baby. Remember, when holding a baby, don't throw it down the stairs. <laughs> and that's, but it's delivered in such a quick way that it shocks you and you think you may well want to actually do that. Yeah, yeah. And, that and I remember having a, a guy came up to me, a bloke who's about in his early 20s, and he went, oh God, thanks very much for telling that story. My sister had a baby and every time I've been asked to hold the baby, I get really scared because I imagine throwing the baby out of the window. Yeah. And now I found out that uh, that's not actually a, well, I hope it wasn't. I didn't, <laughs> didn't read anything in the local paper, but he then found out, you know, that yeah. it was normal. And that I think is part of the fun of comedy is because it is this kind of very, you know, low uh, art and whatever you want to call it. And that, that is where the potency can sometimes be. It's just, you know, some woman or some man standing on stage saying lots of different thoughts that they kind of formulate and turn into a show. And sometimes that can mean that people do go, oh, thank fuck for that. I'm not yeah. as weird as I thought I was. Or thank fuck for that. I'm not as weird as him. You know, <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know, all yeah. of those things I think are really useful. Yeah. Well, it's that, it's that little release valve and safety valve within a society just to laugh at things sometimes but then I've seen you talk about this on uh, Twitter recently it's in the book as well of course about uh, that we can't say you can't joke about anything oh, anymore God, can we yeah. Robin we can't you're not allowed now because of political correctness we can't joke about anything that really was... fucked our jobs up isn't it yeah this is illegal what's happening <laughs> even this this underground club this prohibition era it's a, once that starts you can't argue with anyone though because one one guy today was just going on to me about going yeah but you got yeah but a lot of these edgy comedians are saying really dangerous things i said well they can't be that dangerous because they've got a million pound contract to do it on netflix if things are really dangerous then very often corporations are not there promoting them right <laughs> yeah. and that's what i just I, I, it, it, it's so frustrating because it, one side of you, which is the person that wants to talk about free speech and stuff, is worried. Maybe they are right. And then you look and you go, no, not that many people can have such big contracts and be given so much publicity and be doing such enormous tours saying all of these things which are meant to be... I mean, the thing, as you know, the book is dedicated to Barry Crimmins, who... Um, did you ever have Barry on? You no, I don't think I ever met Barry. Oh, man, Barry was great. And uh, Barry uh, is um, uh, really recommend. There was a great documentary uh, made about Barry uh, by Bobcat Goldthwaite, and I think it might still be on Netflix. It's, it's, re it's really uh, it's called Call Me Lucky. I, I won't give, go give you the details of, of, of his life, but he was a really interesting man and uh, and a very good man as well. And he was someone who I would say was a properly edgy comic because he didn't punched down, he only punched up, and he punched up very often against big institutions, major politicians, kind of corporations, people who would have given, actually, you know, by talking about those things, it would have affected his career, and it did affect his career. And there was a story he told me when I was writing the chapter about ethics, because I do think there's an interesting thing, which is the jokes that we share with people, I think, can say quite a lot about us. They're not, you know, jokes aren't just jokes. That's not, it's, that's rubbish because they, they are about so many different things and yeah. they really can empower people and they can weaken people and all that. That is why, you know, when you get a dictatorship, that's why they round up the comedians and the cabaret artists and all of those things. Yeah, when we saw that kind of stuff going on in Burma and in other countries as well, when you see what happened in Russia and it still is going on in, now. And uh, what, uh, what Barry talked about was he, he did this gig where uh, he was, it was four acts on, he was the final act on. And uh, he, uh, this couple in the front row, they just loved him. 
They really get, get really in, in, like laughing and laughing, but it wasn't getting in the way of the show. Everyone else was like, oh, God, they're having such a great time. We're having an even better time now because they're having such a great time. And afterwards, this couple came up to Barry and just said, oh, thanks very much for the gig. Really enjoyed it. And he said, oh, thank you very much because that really, you know, it was so great watching you just laugh so much and have such a great time. They went, yeah, it's, it's really made the evening great because well, some of the rest of the evening wasn't so easy. And he said, oh, I'm sorry about that. And, and then they explained. They, they said, oh, we don't come out very much. We only come out about once a year um, because we have uh, a child that's quite severely disabled. And uh, we can only get one person who can really deal with all of our child's needs. So we sometimes go out for a meal, sometimes music. Tonight we decided comedy. And the first two acts, they just kept saying, retard this, and retard that. And we just couldn't relax. And we just, it, it was quite difficult for us. And then you came on and very quickly we got a sense of the kind of person that you were and the things that you, some of your values. And, uh, and he said to me after, he said, that's the thing. He said, you have to remember that words are shrapnel. Words, and, and so you have to think sometimes about where you aim them. And you have to think about what those words mean. And, you know, we, we, and, and that to me is such an... You know, he, he said, and uh, sadly, Barry died last year, in February last year. And, uh, but I thought that, that... And then people say, oh, that's really weak. Oh, that's like Orwell. No, it's not. Being thoughtful about your words, and sometimes... It doesn't mean you're not allowed free speech. That's the fucking great thing about free speech. If you have free speech, it should make you even more thoughtful, not, I'm just going to say everything. <laughs> well, don't say everything, because then it all becomes nothing. Think about why you want to use yeah. those words. And it doesn't mean you can't do your edgy comic comedy, which is, you know, so brilliantly puncturing all those people who are already more likely to be beaten up the moment they leave their front door. <laughs> you can still punch down as much as you want and celebrate the increase of victimhood amongst people. You can do that jolly dance while thinking you're fucking Lenny Bruce, who didn't <laughs> die in a million-pound mansion. He died in poverty, you know? He died... That, that, he, he wasn't someone who was still being celebrated. He was someone struggling. So, well, I've done Sorry, I'm getting... It's just a fucking bugbear. Because it's like this incredible thing that is going on where we are seeing the rise of what is ultimately the extreme right within mainstream politics. And the most important issue is apparently someone who has trained their dog to be amusingly fascistic, right? Now, that, to me, is just absolute nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... It's, it's interesting. Um... I still think it's... It's still hard... I'm not saying it's not, I mean, there's still the thing, because we have Twitter, because that means there are millions of people watching you all the time, we'll all do things, we'll go, oh, fuck, you know, I didn't mean it like that, and we'll all feel that, but it's not, that people can, seem to confuse the reality of social media with actual physical reality, because yeah. so, social media are, oh, can you believe, no, no, the whole world's been turned into a safe space, and there's just one angry vegan who's just oppressing all of the old white men, I can't believe it. And then you look out the window and you look at the news and you go, hmm, the angry vegan doesn't seem to have as much control as I'd imagined, you know, and that's... Well, and all the things that people say you can't say, they're then going on to say. So in politics and in comedy, you're not allowed to say anything anymore. You're not allowed to say, I want this and I want that, or I hate this and I hate that. And they just go ahead and say it anyway. So no one's stopping anybody really saying anything. And the things, you know, comedy's always evolved, hasn't it? And so like this, between the 70s and 80s, some things changed which most of us now would go, that's probably quite good that that changed. It's probably good. You know, but there were people arguing, there was old school comedians arguing in 1981 that they should be able to do the thing about black people moving in next door to them still as their main jokes because it's funny and it's not hurting anyone. But now we would all accept that that was a load of shit, that stuff. Uh, so that's that, the thing I fear is when you see those guys, you don't want to be that guy of your generation, do you? You don't want to be the guy going, no, I should be allowed to do the thing I always did. It doesn't matter. 
It's just a joke. But, it, you know, it clearly isn't just a joke with, with sometimes. I mean, sometimes I think definitely you see people, that there's a whole thing of getting too worked up by, you know, going, don't worry about it. There's lots of major things. And yes, there's a guy who's a dick and they've said a dickish thing, but don't fuck it. And also, because that's what I find intriguing about some of the edgy comics who seem to then go, I can't believe that people are getting angry about my edgy comedy. He's going, but that's why you wanted to be an edgy comic, wasn't it? <laughs> to also annoy. That's the thing that I also find weird is the people, whether they're journalists, and you definitely see that. I've, I accidentally read a piece by Rod Little the other day. And I just, <laughs> and, you can see the glee as they start writing. <laughs> oh, people are going to be really cross about this. People are going to be upset. Some people might cry and other people will be angry. Imagine that. Every fucking show, every column, everything that you worked on, your first thought was not, will I enlighten, will I entertain? Oh, brilliant. Some people are going to be really upset. What an odd drive that is to have. <laughs> so that's why I don't read The Spectator. <laughs> Very true. Okay, well, I'd, I'd be upset if I didn't ask you this question before we go, because I've been asking everyone, and I think, I think this will make you... You'll find this difficult to answer, I think. Oh, no. Goodness, you. Uh, if you could ha have one item from any art gallery or museum in the world, and you're allowed to keep it, any one item from any museum, it could be an artefact, it could be a work of art or anything, which one thing do you take home with you and keep from every museum in the world? I'm allowed one from every museum. No, you're allowed oh, one thing oh, from oh, every museum. That's really hard. <laughs> I know, I knew I you'd think, find it hard. Yeah, I mean, the, the immediate thing would be something like, uh, there's a, uh, I, I was going to say there's a Turner painting in the Walker Gallery in Liverpool, but that's giving away the fact that I'm about to steal it, isn't it? So I better not be as specific. <laughs> you're allowed to have it. The, the, all um, the museums have agreed you can have one thing. There, there is, there's, there's a Turner painting there of uh, a sunset, which was the first time that I really looked at a Turner painting and went, oh, I get it. You know that moment where, every now and again there's that fantastic kind of Damascene moment where you go oh I was going to say you see the light which of course you literally do with the Turner <laughs> thing which is but it was like that kind of moment so I, th I think something like that I, I really love the work of Louise Bourgeois ah Paul Arago though I went to a fantastic the, uh, <laughs> and there was a really great Paul Arago exhibition that was at the Milton Keynes Gallery which is going up to the Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh and I, I think Paul Arago is just such an incredible uh, the, the fact that her paintings actually change things as well. That her political paintings, her, her paintings about, you know, legalising abortion that, 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 that she did, all of those things, that, that they actually had a genuine effect on, uh, on, on, on the politics and the rights in the country. And yet they're, they're beautiful and they're spooky and they're kind of uncanny. So I think I, I, would, I would pick... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll have that Paul Arago one with that weird kind of nightmare. There's something to Mark Steele. And the, uh, <laughs> but with the... Uh, um, the yeah, the, the, there's one with a kind of nightmarish rabbit in the, in the background. So uh, I'll have oh, right. Paul Arago's you can have that. nightmarish rabbit. Thank That's you very much. <laughs> All the museums and art galleries have agreed that that can happen. Uh, all right, I'll do one more. This is one I got from Davy Johns in Newcastle. Who, now, this is, you kind of got into the lift with them, but who is the most famous person you've been in a lift with that you've got into a lift and that famous person's been in a lift? Oh, man. I don't know. Oh. I normally take the stairs because for, for <laughs> health reasons. Who's the most famous person you've crossed on the stairs? Yeah, who would that be? Uh, I, I mean, oh, I didn't quite get into a lift with them, but uh, I remember... Uh, 
John Malkovich on an escalator was pretty good. Okay, that's good. That, there okay, was jo that. John, John Malkovich on an escalator in Green Park because he really does have... You know, there are certain performers which the level of, of, of their charisma is potent. Yeah. There really is a kind of like, you know, the, the, the ether of their majesty just hovering around them. And, and I think, you know, John Malkovich really had that. So okay. John Malkovich, John Malkovich down the... escalator, Piccadilly you line. Uh, no, I was on the same You're escalator. You were on the same yeah. line. Yeah. You're behind or ahead of him? Uh, I was slightly behind. Okay. Yeah. That's nice. He does a very good audio book of Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut, and the best thing is just him describing the pictures. He goes, <sighs> and there, there is a picture of a vagina. <laughs> a oh, beaver. I've not heard that. That sounds yeah, great. It's very good having John Markwich read that to you. My number one uh, talking book has gen generally remained Johnny Cash reading the New Testament, which is fantastic, <laughs> and, and is about forty hours long, obviously. And wow. it's it's uh, that, that that. But I think John Malkovich reading Breakfast of Champions. And how did you find reading your own book back? Was that an easy thing to do? Or? Well, there were some weird things. I found out the uh, the editor had put in a couple of jokes. And there was one where I was a little bit kind of... Uh, and it was my own fault, because what happened was that I was so difficult, because I wrote a book that was way too long, and I didn't want to lose anything, and I didn't want to put that new bit in they suggested it would be a better idea, and blah, blah, blah. And so that, that was a weird thing. And the producer said he could tell that the, the bits where I didn't really want to, you know, bits that had been put in under duress. Right. So I'd kind of be there reading it. And then there was an incredible thing. And, there, and of course, at that particular moment when Eddie has explored this idea, and then there's an idea by... Uh, <laughs> and then there's something... So that was it, yeah. So reading about Jung's dream about doing a big poo on uh, Basel Cathedral yeah. uh, was... I was cock open and happy, yeah. reading the Elizabeth Kugler-Ross stuff about the stage of grieving, less. So. Okay. That's interesting today. Well, it's a fantastic book. If you're interested in comedy uh, and just in uh, ways people's brains work, which we didn't really get into, there's lots of... Uh, lots. Oh, of yeah, there was. We didn't really get into it. I got worried, actually, because, again, because I've been quite worried doing this tonight, and it was like, uh, not beforehand, cause I, uh, but just now, because I kept thinking, I know this story, and I get really worried about doing that because it feels like a cheat. So yeah. it's like, whereas last time I hadn't done this before, so I could do all my impressions and yeah. stuff, and, yeah. That's do, a, we'll do them backstage. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do them loudly. Yeah, that'll be... Uh, yeah. <laughs> If anyone wants to watch the thing, come in the dressing room. It uh, was, I mean, the, the most fun of doing that book I, I, now has been doing events about it afterwards and actually then finding out the different things that people have found in it and finding the different kind of neuroses that people have yeah. and finding that bit of... Because it's that whole thing of we all want to in some ways be useful, don't we? And that bit where you actually find someone goes, oh, oh, good. <laughs> My book has both sold and occasionally been useful as well. And it's been really interesting. Because that's what I find. The moment you open up this conversation... Because quite often people only want... Like, we didn't talk about the death stuff, but I found it very interesting that uh, it, sometimes people just want to say something to you that acknowledges that they've lost someone. Mm -hmm. They don't want to take up much of your time, whatever, but because you've talked about it on stage, they'll then go, or in the book, or whatever it might be, they say, oh, thanks very much, I have this thing. Like, there was an amazing one where, in, in, again, in Nottingham, actually, where a man came up to me before a show, and uh, he, he just said, uh, I wasn't going to come here tonight, uh, because it was my mum's funeral today. Um, but uh, then I suddenly thought, I fancy a laugh, so no pressure. <laughs> and that, you know, that, but I've always, because uh, my, my, my friend Rebecca, who I interviewed for this book, who uh, had done some, Rebecca Payton, who if, if any of you do want to, if any of you are ever having any, you know, with, with kind of grieving and things like that, and I know you'll have had Carrie Ad Lloyd on, and Griefcast is such an incredible um, podcast as well, but um, 
and Rebecca's done that as well, but Rebecca's stuff about grieving, because she lost both her, her dad when she was six years old and her, her um, sister was murdered when she was in her 30s. And so, so much of her life is, has been dealing with different ideas of trying to understand her own grief and stuff. And there was an incredible thing that she said. She did this show called Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister, um, which she wrote with a friend of hers, which was really about her grieving for the loss of her sister. And when I was chatting to her for the book, at one point she said, when I performed it for the first time, I suddenly worked out who had written it. And she chatted to her co-writer when she walked off. She went, I know, I've just known who, who wrote the book. And uh, he said, oh, I wrote the, the piece. She said, oh, what, what do you mean? She said, well, it wasn't me. The person who wrote it was the six-year-old that no one listened to when her dad died. And again, I think that thing about kind of the possibilities of art and communication and whatever, that she, in her 40s, she wrote, or late 30s, she wrote this piece. Mm -hmm. And she suddenly went, oh, I've now made a connection with that other part of me. And I think that, that bit, and that's why I think also that one of the things that I've talked about, which I would have written about in the book, and said I only worked it out afterwards, which is the fact that that bit of being able to turn things into jokes or stories or whatever, um, I think, I know sometimes, you know, Hannah Gadsby and her show might kind of contradict that sometimes about turn, but I think that bit where you can take an event of your life and you can kind of solidify it and turn it into something which you can then properly look at and kind of interrogate is a really useful thing, whether you do that professionally or whether you do that, you know, just at home, if you just decide to write a little story for no apparent reason whatsoever, but somewhere in that story you find something of yourself, I think that's really useful. Yeah, definitely. Um... Have you got, did you bring books with you? No, I didn't. Okay. You said I could bring books and sell them, and then I suddenly realised that I'd just be really embarrassed by the whole situation. Okay. And uh, I nearly brought two, because I thought, well, that may be. And then I thought, it's that kind of arrogance that gets in the way of my art. Okay. So uh, I well, changed my mind. I'll be selling my books after the show, but <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, give a massive round of applause. Robin Eads! Thank you very much. Come back next week. We'll do some more. Go and have a drink in a week. Obviously, in a week. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Rich Terring, and my guest, Robin Ince. Thank you to Pest for playing this music. Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre. It's good to be home after that. Long, long nights away. Thank you to everyone at GoFaster Stripe, especially Chris Evans. Not that one. I'm indebted to my producer, Ben Walker. I'm also indebted to my executive producer, Jason Ruse. Um, he was good. He was a good executive producer. Not as good as some of the others, but they can't all be gold. Uh, I'm joking, Jason. You were fine. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFasterStripe.com production for the internet. Go to richardhang.com slash gigs to find out about gigs coming up. Go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges to become one of our monthly badges and get all kinds of crazy-ass benefits to make your friends so jealous, my fine friends.